You're listening to Someone Like Me. This episode was recorded in the early months of 2022. We had just purchased our new Survivor Restoration Campus, and the conversations you hear in this third season will refer to this campus as well as our former name, End Slavery Tennessee. In 2023, our organization rebranded to Ancora Tennessee, ushering a new era as we nurture survivor healing and strategically combat human trafficking in this state of Tennessee. Now, without further ado, we present Season 3 of Someone Like Me. Please enjoy. This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast of Ancora, Tennessee, formerly known as End Slavery, Tennessee. I'm Leslie, and as we wrap up this season of the podcast, we want to end with a reflection, a way to look back at all the episodes with a theme that ties them all together. From the two-part conversation with Vanessa to the youth stories of hope, we recognize the need to be ethical storytellers, to present stories to our listeners with integrity. The reason for this is twofold. First and foremost, it creates a safe space for current and future survivors. We don't want to set a precedent for current survivors in our program that their story may be shared without their consent. For complete healing, they need to know that we do not require anything in return for the services we offer them. And for future survivors who may be under our care, it's harmful when trafficking victims hear stories that are sensationalized or presented in a manipulated manner. They may not see themselves in the story. That's not me, that's not my story. The second reason to focus on ethical storytelling is for the listening audience and education. We believe that the more you know about the truth of this crime, the more we can collectively work to end it. This episode features Tia Bowden, former intervention specialist for Encore Tennessee, Her role has worked closely with survivors on a very intimate level, often being the first line after deeply traumatic situations. She, Stacy, and myself discuss why ethical storytelling is not only important, but the only way to safely educate society about human trafficking. All right, so here we are. This episode, we're going to be talking about a big phrase, which is ethical storytelling. And we've, we've talked about this before. Uh, the last season, we talked a lot about it because listeners would notice that we had less survivor stories than we did perhaps the first season. And there were a couple of reasons for that. The pandemic was going on and it's it was a little hard to coordinate all, that, all the parts. But when we looked at ethical storytelling, which we're going to talk about today, we didn't have survivors that were ready to tell their stories just yet in a way that would have been healing to them last season. And so this season, we want to talk more about that specifically right now with Tia, who came to Encora TN several years ago. You started in direct service, right? Yes, when I started my my first official position okay, and not just my internship. And you were like an intervention specialist, which means you were kind of front lines for everything that was happening. I was frontline, single point of contact for 41 counties, for people that were self-referring, for agencies that were referring on behalf of someone. 
referrals from law enforcement, from hospitals, anybody that thought they may be in contact with a trafficking victim or that they might be themselves. For the purposes of our listeners, we've we've talked about the hotline before, which we'll put the phone number in the description and you can find it on the website. But so you kind of were the person not necessarily taking the call from the hotline, but you would be the person that would go kind of look into any tips that came in? It's kind of a delicate dance, I think. Obviously, we are a voluntary program. And so the people that were calling us or case managers that were calling on behalf of a person, they were calling because they were interested in services and they were already in a spot where they could kind of continue moving forward. While we are the single point of contact or the regional contact for our counties, the 41 counties we serve, we do not go out and do the work on the streets. So mm-hmm. we're not doing that type of street outreach or following up on tips necessarily. Okay. We are passing those along to the professionals and the people who have the right skills for that. So law enforcement, the hotline, and then All of those people know that once they get in contact with a person, if they're in an unsafe situation on the streets, for example, they can call us and we will go and be an advocate for them in terms of what aftercare services that they provide. So we pick up where law enforcement and other agencies' responsibilities end or where their specialization ends, if that makes sense. So like a particular situation might be a sting mm-hmm. where you would be available after, what is the right word? Identification. Identification, like. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. identification. We try and have at least one or two of us from Ancora TN on site of stings if we're notified about them in a timely manner. Some of them happen more quickly and we just can't get as much of a heads up, but We have one to two of the staff members there so that when the survivor is identified, we can talk with them, see if they have any immediate needs that we can help with. Maybe they haven't had food. Maybe they need some hygiene products pretty immediately. Or if they have injuries that they need to be taken to the hospital for, addressing that situation and getting them comfortable and building up rapport. And then we will tell them about our aftercare services. And they can accept that or not. We Mm -hmm. just want to let them know that we're here from them. So you have been in very intimate, tender situations with a lot of people who are are in vulnerable states. Yes. (laughs) So you know well uh, what trauma can look like in those contexts. But you've also seen what it looks like for a healing process to begin. Mm -hmm. And now you're working in a development role within Mm -hmm. the organization. (laughs) Which seems different, but I almost feel like in order to do that role well, you have to know very deeply what it is this organization does and who it is you're serving. And so from your perspective, going from that role to this one, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say when it comes to survivors using their voices, especially when it comes to things like podcasts. Or any kind of uh, media that goes out, social media. How do we mm-hmm. communicate about what we do unless we use survivor voice? That's the dilemma we're, we're in. And mm-hmm. so how do we do it well that honors that person? Yeah. Um, last season, we talked about trauma-informed care and what does it mean to be trauma-informed. And so I wonder if we can start there 
And how does being trauma-informed affect ethical storytelling and what we are inviting our survivors to be involved in? Yeah. One of the examples that I use to explain this as best as I can to people that aren't in the aftercare world or aren't in some sort of frontline service world, trauma-informed care, I think the root of it is giving strength and power back to an individual when it has been taken away. And knowing that they are experts of their story and that they have the ownership of their story. And so believing what they tell you, because everyone's experience, even trafficking experience, is very, very different, and it does not look the same for anybody. And so the best way I can talk about trauma-informed care is that we meet them where they're at what they're ready to talk about, what they are ready to tell us that they need if they are at a point where they can tell us that, and letting them be their own voice and to sp- they know what they need. It is not any of our responsibility or it isn't appropriate for us to assume what somebody's needs are because mm-hmm. the only person that really knows is the person you're trying to help, right? And so I think that's kind of the root of it is just giving power back to people who have been powerless or had their power, their individuality taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think specifically about this podcast, it would be so easy for someone to listen and to hear a survivor's story and expect to hear a lot of details Mm -hmm. Um, because in the media, Put quotes around the media, but I mean movies, news sometimes. There was a big story last year that the headline was unhelpful and kind of misleading because it talked about a double wide trailer and a sting operation of children. And that was shared over and over. But when you got down to the details, it was, it included runaways that they had just found where they were and included a lot of things that weren't 30 children in a double wide trailer Mm -hmm. in a trafficking operation. Right. And so we have been exposed to things that people who are listening to this podcast might think, Oh, it'll be interesting to hear that survivor story because, you know, to hear their terrible exploits, but we don't do that because it is harmful Can you talk to that and what specifically is going on there? I think that with the impressions and with the information that comes out in media sources, it can be very misleading to people that are actually experiencing trafficking trauma. As intervention coordinator, I would do intakes and be asking this list of questions And then they would say, well, I wasn't trafficked because it's not like what I saw on TV. I wasn't kidnapped. I wasn't held in a basement. None of those things happened to me. So there's no way that what I'm experiencing is trafficking. And so I think it can be really harmful in us not being able to serve the people that really need us. And then it also kind of creates this perspective for survivors that their story or what they've experienced isn't good enough or dramatic enough for them to tell us to receive services. Well, you know, I think what you're trying to say is that we don't want to invalidate any story no. that mm-hmm. comes to the table, even if it doesn't fit the mold yes. of what is commonly understood as trafficking. You know, we have to keep an open heart and an open mind because we're all learning. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that goes back to trauma-informed care. What I was saying earlier is like just believing someone's story and letting them tell you and not questioning it, it really makes a difference in how they feel like they are able to approach their healing and what services they feel like they deserve, which of course they all deserve services. But to them, it feels like if I don't look like the woman I saw on TV and I'm not experiencing that, then I don't deserve help. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very messy in terms of like, of course, misinformation getting spread or hurt survivors when they're looking for services. And I think that's it. People think that trafficking is just this one thing. Like it's just being kidnapped and then taken Mm -hmm. across state lines. And so the sooner we realize that not everyone's story is the same, Mm -hmm. the better off we'll be. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I remember Santoya Brown from last season. She was in prison watching TV and saw the What is 13 campaign, Mm -hmm. which is a PR campaign that Ancorati ended when they were in slavery, Tennessee. And that was when she kind of realized, wait a minute, was this a part of my story? You know, that was talking about trafficking. And that's when she kind of came to that realization. And I know that when we have a survivor on this podcast, the process in order to get them ready, and then on the back end, after the interview, make sure they're okay. First of all, it's built. It is identified. It is labeled. It is a thing. We don't just have someone come sit down and tell their story. Mm -hmm. There's work that goes in beforehand with their therapist. And then there's always someone in the room who they know and are comfortable with, um, the direct service provider. And then on the end, there's aftercare in that situation because sometimes there are things that might come up. And I have heard of situations. I haven't been in one, but I've heard of situations where maybe a survivor shared more than they were willing to share initially going into it. What kind of harm does that do when maybe they realized on the back end, I don't know that I wanted to share that, or maybe I thought I wanted to share it, but I feel differently about it now. I think specifically for the clients that we serve, it's very common for them to, of course, have trauma connected to their trafficking history, but then trauma connected to so many different things. And Trafficking is a very interesting kind of sector to be in in social service world because it includes so many different things. There's so much overlap. And so often when clients will start telling their story, it is just this unraveling of things they haven't even realized yet. Um, They have lived in survival mode their entire lives. And so a lot of this information and these traumas have been put on the back burner just so they can continue to survive and keep moving forward. And when we get a survivor and they start our program, something I say often is one of the last things you're going to address while you're here is your trafficking history because Mm -hmm. you've got to work through so many more things because you've never had time to sit and think about yourself. Mm. So don't feel bad if you don't get to that while you're here in the first two years. Um, It's very common that that's the last thing. And so as they have these suppressed memories and as they're telling their story, I think things just start to unravel and it, it can be really emotional. And they don't become desensitized to what's happened to them But to them, it's the norm. It's Mm -hmm. what they've experienced. And so as they have grown and started their healing journeys, they realize, oh, that wasn't okay. That was actually somebody taking advantage of me. And so I think always having transparency about you can 
not tell your story at all if you don't want to. You can include what you want or not include what you want and then having supports available afterward because you never know what's going to come forward when they start talking about their trauma. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there are any contexts or like under what circumstances could a survivor tell difficult details of their story? Like when is it appropriate in healing and when is the line crossed over into inappropriate, unethical? I think definitely it needs to be the survivor's idea. It needs to be something Mm. that they want to do. It needs to be something they've had plenty of conversations with their therapist, their care coordinators at our agency, the other people in their lives, Mm. because maybe some of those details include family members or friends. There has to have been so much communication about what may come of this story. One of the first clients I ever accepted into the program A year after she started, she said, I want to be your first success story. And I said, no, I want you to be your own Mm. success story. And so making sure that it is the benefit for them and not for us. What is the benefit of telling this story? Are the right people going to be hearing it? Have you had enough conversations about it? And I think that comes a lot farther along in recovery than we realize Because the road to recovery and healing is not linear. Mm -hmm. And so it's very up and down. So we may be having, you know, a couple of months where we're like, I've really worked through all of my stuff and I'm ready to tell this story. And then something else unravels. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of something, Tia, that you say, it's a phrase that I cannot hear without hearing it in your voice, but it speaks to that reality that you just kind of, that you sort of illustrated. And that is, When we do the job we hope to do in helping someone process this experience and and get through, sometimes, you know, they want to offer something in return, right? They want to say, oh, I want to be your first success story. And there's the motivation is pure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a very kind and sweet thing, right, Mm -hmm. from that perspective. But Tia, say it again. I love it when you say it. I usually say, especially in situations when we're talking about stings, that's such a Mm -hmm. vulnerable moment and can be very overwhelming. If you accept these services, we're here for you and we'll give you what you need. And we do not expect anything in return. And I think that bleeds into everything. Mm -hmm. Not only like if we are giving you hygiene products or clothing, you do not have to give us the money that you save up from your stipend that you receive mm-hmm. from us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you do not have to give us anything in your in return. And I think that includes stories and asking them to give quotes for mm-hmm. the community. It includes those things. And so we want to be very transparent about you are the guide for your journey. We are here to Do what you know you need right now, and you aren't going to have to give us anything in return. And that's a very shocking moment. And it feels so surreal to a lot of the clients in the intakes that I did that they'll say no. They'll deny services because Hmm. it feels like you're giving me this beautiful life of stability, a roof over my head, food consistently, You're telling me that I can go to the doctor for free with one of your partnerships in the community. What on earth am I going to have to give you in return for that? Because to be fair to them, that has been how they've survived is transactional, 
even if it begins as a relationship with a boyfriend, for example, which mm -hmm. is how a lot of these things begin. And then at some point, though, there's a sort of pivot. Well, if you if you want to keep living here, I'm going to need you to X, Y, Z. And so they have not been living in a state of unconditional gifts and safety. And it's good instinct. I mean, mm -hmm. absolutely. It's absolutely the right instinct to go, what is the catch with you? Yeah. This seems too good to be true and I'm not buying it. That's the attitude. because, And, it, and it's a street smart attitude. Yeah, it's how they've made it this far. It's how they they keep going. And we've had plenty of clients enter the program and then four months in, they'll say, okay, I feel like I can finally breathe and I'm ready to to settle in. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're and saying, then they realized there wasn't another one. You're saying four months in mm -hmm. that it takes that long. I don't think people understand that. I mean, even, even when I hear it, I mean, I know it, but hearing it again, it's hard to process mm -hmm. that reality. Absolutely. It can take four months. It can take a couple of years with some of the clients that we've had. And we succeed in letting them know that they're not going to have to give us anything in return by being very transparent and consistent. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're doing those two things, they know it's a safe place. Nothing, I like the word you use, nothing is going to be pivoted. Mm -hmm. It's going to stay the stay the way that we present it. And if something were for some reason needed to change, we would let them know. But it can take an extreme amount of time, and it's not something that happens overnight at all. So I think there are a lot of people that listen to this show because they want to learn more about this issue and have the best intentions for that. And I'm sure sometimes it can feel like, well, why aren't they— talking about the things that are actually happening. I think it comes from a good place. But when we look at it through a trauma-informed lens, I mean, there have been episodes with survivors where our production team will cut things the survivor said. If they chose to say that, they are welcome to. We are thinking about the listener in mind. And we do not want to give a listener, you know, we don't want to distract. And so people who are listening to this, how can they learn more about what's happening, intimately understand what's going on without putting people's well-being on the line? This is my favorite question ever. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, I am the most passionate about education and doing that in a way that gives people space to be vulnerable and say, hey, I actually don't know these things. So giving them a chance to ask those hard questions and letting them know that they shouldn't be ashamed or they shouldn't feel any shame for not knowing. They should be proud for stepping up and wanting to learn more. It is not the responsibility of a survivor to educate the community on what trafficking is. There are people in place and agencies who have had many years of experience like, like Ancora TN and we have this information that we've gathered over time. And we can present that and educate people on what the reality of trafficking is without explaining someone else's trauma or connecting it to a certain person. And people are extremely receptive to that. The people that are most receptive to that are kids hmm. because they still have that curiosity. 
where they can ask questions and feel like, okay, it's okay, I don't know this. I'm 10, you know? (laughs) And so I think what I try to do in my trainings, which you can request for free or take through our website, we have an online training program. This stage that I try to set is it's okay if you don't know something. It's okay if you're not sure if a question is appropriate. This is a safe space to talk through those things. And I think that's how we get education out there in a way where people know what to look for. They know what the signs are. They're not looking for a particular story or a particular trafficking history because they've been educated more generally, and they can see all of the different things that are involved in trafficking histories. But if we can get that education out there and offer that and then train our teachers, train our corrections officers, train cosmetologists, if we can do that and train people and they can spread accurate information with the commitment to being a lifelong learner, like everybody at Ancoratian has, mm-hmm. and knowing that it's different for everybody. There are things that continue to pop up that I am like, oh, I never expected that we would hear that story. And so committing to the idea that there will be new things that come up, there will be stories that you just can't imagine would even be considered trafficking. Mm. And that's how we get the right information spread. And by doing that, I think that really sets a stage for people to be more involved. People come in with an understanding that, hey, I don't know exactly what their stories are or what they need. That's not my place to know. My place is to know that this is happening and that there's a need for something. How can I best serve you? And I never want to say that I'm speaking on behalf of a survivor because I'm not. I'm just speaking with information that they have given me. And I can say our greatest need is hygiene products right now, or our greatest need is somebody to come in and teach a class about resumes. And I think that's how we take our good intentions and apply them to a way that would realistically be helpful for survivors. I don't think we can say enough what you just said, and that is it's not a survivor's responsibility educate the public about what trafficking is. Man, I wish we could understand as a society. Okay, so I want to also talk about something else. And one of the things I want to talk about is the way we honor the people who have decided that this is a part of their healing to tell their story. Um, You heard Leslie talk about how we do some pre, some preparation We do carefully walking through this situation with someone who they trust. So if somebody comes and speaks on our podcast, they have been through this process and they will have like a debrief afterward for as long as it takes. Also, part of ethical storytelling includes a fair compensation for their time. Mm -hmm. Not for their story, but for the time and effort it took. And it takes a considerable amount uh, to do that. We, we don't give, uh, you know, it's an amount of money that we feel is a gift for their time. In all of these ways that we involve survivors, because they want to share their stories. Absolutely. Um, I think that's something that I've learned in this whole process is that when the circumstances are right and when healing has happened, there is a willingness to share both to just have their voice heard, which all of us want to have our voices heard, but also 
to speak to, there have been times where at the end of the interviews, we will say, is there anything, if somebody's listening right now who suspects maybe they might be involved in a similar situation or you know, what would you say to them? And the willingness that they have to speak to people who were in their shoes is commendable and again, not their responsibility. And so I think it would be easy for us to, without realizing it, take advantage of people who are willing, but without going through the steps to be sure everyone and everything is safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I have a family member who was not trafficked, but does have a, a survivor's story. And we've talked throughout the years of this the story, because it impacted me personally. So it is a part of my story, but it's about her trauma. And it informs me when I do my work here at Ancora, Tennessee. But in more recent years, as we've talked about this, well, first of all, the reason she even said that I'm allowed to use her story when I do trainings is because she's hoping that somebody who hears the story will not have to go through what she went through. That's what she says. And I've kept in touch with her. I tell her, you know, when I'm going to tell her story. Or actually, here's the problem. I I used to tell her afterwards the impact that I thought her story had when I was able to tell it. And I didn't tell all details. I told it from my perspective. And then she asked me one day, she said, Stacey, would you please, before you tell my story, um, will you let me know that you're going to do that? And um, I said, you know, I I wish that I had the foresight to have asked her that beforehand. I I had to learn that I was curating that over and over and over again Mm -hmm. and that it was was her right to know when that was going to happen. And, you know, she told me even now, she said, I I would like you to just continue doing that. I would definitely just be done with that. But it's a process. And, And I think we've also learned, Tia, too, right, that sometimes people are willing and ready in the moment, but then something changes. And I think it's a great point that the women that have been on the podcast previously are so willing to to give advice or what is that one sentence to say because the clients realize that there is tremendous value in hearing, you can come to this program. Mm-hmm. There are people that will help you from another survivor and from somebody who understands their lifetime of experiences, hearing that from another client or another survivor is far more impactful than hearing it from me because they can trust that, oh, I know that 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 person has struggled to survive and has had people take advantage of her. If she's telling me that I can go to this program, I believe that. Yeah. That is something that I wouldn't ask people to do but is such an incredible, courageous act that I am grateful for. And all of the women, and there have been episodes that did not run on this podcast that we recorded, that we edited, that we were about to push go on, and they didn't because the survivor changed changed her mind. And that's great. And I'm so glad we, you know, we didn't press go too soon, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful that for everything I've learned uh, while working with the team here at Encora, just taking our time, being certain, and taking a trauma-informed approach to everything. And it is in everything that we do, from the way that the office coordinator answers the phone to the way that our 
care coordinators interact with clients to the way that our volunteers donate their time or donate their money or their in-kind donations. It is in every aspect of what we do. And I think that's what sets us apart from a lot of other organizations. How does the office coordinator answer the phone? We, in the past, what we have done is, I think it's important to involve the office coordinator in what's happening in direct service because a lot of times calls that are meant for the referral line will go to the office coordinator. And so having a policy in place of if somebody does call you and it's after hours or if the intervention coordinator is out of the office, these are things that you can say so that you feel like you have the knowledge to approach the situation. So the first question is, are you in a safe place? Mm -hmm. If you're not, you need to call local law enforcement, the trafficking hotline, and then proceed from there. And then be very transparent in saying, here is the number that you can call if you are in a safe space to do that, to reach the referral line, and you can leave a voicemail if that's safe for you. But also understanding when you answer the phone to ask questions like, is it okay to call you back on this number? Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Is it okay for me to leave a voicemail on this number? Would it be more safe for you to email us? And we have an online form for those people to fill out. Mm -hmm. So the office coordinator can say, assess for safety, send them in the right direction, and then let them know their options. And then setting a transparent timeline of it may be a day or two before somebody can get back for, to you, depending on the circumstances. But we have that in the phone calls with the office coordinator. We have that kind of policy set in place with our events and communication specialist mm -hmm. to respond to messages we get on social media. And it is just in everything that we do. Well, and that, Caitlin, who is the director of communications, she'll be on this season. She was on last season specifically talking about how to, how are communications involved. And since that episode, I know for a fact that the website added a new feature mm -hmm. wherein you can, if you press one button, it'll call the hotline, but there's another button that's like a safe escape. Yep. So that if someone is looking at the website and then somebody comes over their shoulder, they can press that button and it'll take them to a completely different website. So it is truly in everything, everything you all are doing. Yeah. Also in this season of the podcast, you will hear survivor stories that have been written down and we have been given permission to share those stories. And it's, they're minor stories. They're stories from children or, or teens. But the person who has given us permission to share the story is now older. Mm. So the person is no longer a teenager, but this is the story they wrote down and presented to our care coordinator to help communicate their reality. So they had time to think about it and process it and were given a chance to decide if they if they would be willing to have that shared. It's not in their literal voice, but it is in their voice because it's their words. Yes. And I think, too, something important for the community to know and for other survivors who may be concerned, any of the stories or journeys or quotes that we share, it is not something that happened last week or last month. We wait a very safe amount of time before using any of that information and making it as vague as we can. And so 
waiting until they're out of the program or waiting until a year after something has happened and we keep all of that internally so we can say, okay, it's been a year since that's happened. We can craft that into a quote and then run it by the survivor to see if they're okay with it, if it's vague enough, if they feel safe with that. See, do you ever know if we've been approached by some kind of media outlet, somebody wanting to do a documentary, and how we respond to that? When we get this request um, for a survivor to speak on media outlets or on the news or in a documentary, we're going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, bottom line. We're going to say no and then have a conversation if a particular person was asked. It's happened to where somehow a member of a church community was specifically asked to be in an interview. And so we say no and then have that conversation with the survivor explaining why we say no and what that can look like in the future and talking through safer opportunities for that because I think survivors are very compelled to tell their stories because They want to help other people. They want to make sure that other people are getting the right information. And they're proud of themselves for the work that they've done. It can be difficult for them to say, it's okay if I keep this to myself. And if I own this myself, and if I give myself credit for this and take the time to heal myself and not feel like I need to be in a hurry to serve someone else. Mm -hmm. So having those conversations as much as we can. Generally, rule of thumb for us, we say no and really discourage any sort of interview or story even that we use in our social media from anybody that's an active client. The expectation and best practice is that it would be somebody that is an alumni client and have transitioned from the program. Mm -hmm. And we, we try to find creative ways to communicate the kind of work that we do, and somebody who wants to make sure people understand. Before the pandemic, we did a series called The Monologues, and people that wanted to hear stories and be able to help us creatively express that experience, they invested the time, the energy, and the effort, and they help us in that process of curating the story. And then we also have to kind of sometimes use creative license and modify those stories so that maybe a dramatic expression of that story is a combination of two or three because we don't want to reveal the identity of any of our clients for their own safety. And we never want to place emphasis on something from our perspective that the survivor wouldn't emphasize or um, that's a good point. diminish or kind of shrink down experiences because of our perspective. And it goes a lot into what Stacy's saying about we have to figure out how can we craft connection because that's what people want. And obviously that, you know, that's kind of how we all function. We want to have some sort of connection. And so how can we craft something personable but make it to where it's not identifiable? Mm-hmm. Or sensationalized. Well? Yeah, or sensationalized. And something that Maybe even the survivors can get joy from hmm. and Imagine an experience that. Yeah. that they asked for, an experience that they enjoyed and saw enriching and want to share it with people. And so some of those things that aren't someone's story, but 
are part of someone's personality, not based on their trauma, but who they are because that's who they deserve to be recognized as. We've done marble painting classes with them, and we will take pictures of the paintings and post them, of course, with their consent. Every client signs a consent form saying that their art can be shared, poems, quotes. They fill that out and sign that regularly. So posting things like that, or we had a gardening class uh, last year, and one of the survivors said, take a picture of this and, and post it. I think it's really cool, and I want people to know that this class we took was helpful. And so posting things like that to show the personalities of the survivors, not exposing their trauma by re-exploiting them. Mm-hmm. This goes back to really what this podcast was started about in the first place, and that was hope. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are listening to this right now and you want to see the effects of healing on survivors, you want to hear survivor stories, just pay attention because they're there. They're in the stories of hope that Enquiratian shares on socials and newsletters. They're not going to be sensationalized. But you're going to see the truth and you're going to see something that is accurate and something that is beautiful. And I don't think we need to hear the horrors to understand how terrible a thing is and still act upon it and still be activists to change it. And so if you watch, you will see. You will see the survivor's stories uh, without having to hear them tell all the intricate details. Yeah. Imagine yourself. And you were in an interview and somebody said, hey, would you mind talking to me a little bit about a time that you were really traumatized and had something really terrible happened in your life? Would you please tell all the gory, terrible details of that for all to hear? It's ludicrous. And it actually happens. That's what's the sad part, isn't it? We haven't understood as a culture that it is not okay. It is not okay to demand that from people who have already been demanded so much of them. It's something we need to change. It's something that we need to change in our culture and not expect anymore. I mean, we don't identify people by their trauma when they're in our lives and when, Mm -hmm. you know, when they're actively part of our lives. Why should we do that with other people that aren't in our immediate circles? Yep. Why is that? an expectation that we have for them because they're people too, just like your loved one. We'd like to thank Junior League of Nashville for being a community awareness partner with someone like me. Our producers are Stacey Elliott, Caitlin Reed, and myself, Leslie Eiler-Thompson. In addition to being a producer, Claire Bidigari-Curtis is our engineer, and she is assisted by Selena De La Cruz. Special thanks to our intern, Riley Herman. The original music you hear is by Zach and Maggie White.